Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob here again, and I've got every data, the misinformation hidden in the little data you consume every day. And I've got John Johnson with me today with a PhD. Uh, but before we get into talking about John a little bit, let's talk about Mike Gluck, who is one of the co-writers of the book. John, number one, thanks for coming on the show. And let's uh, let's find out a little bit about Mike. Well, sure. Well, Mike and I actually went to high school together uh, 25 years ago in uh, Amherst, New York, right outside of Buffalo. And uh, Mike is a professional writer and does a lot of work in marketing. And uh, I am a professional economist. So we kind of came together um, to write this book together uh, based on an idea I had. Um, but Mike is a, a fantastic writer and also really one of the best parts of the dynamic of the book is since I'm the professional statistician and he is just a really smart guy, he really made the book such a better um, piece of work for our audience because if he could understand it well as a sort of that made a lot of sense in times where things weren't as clear to him, uh, that meant we had to do a better job of explaining it. So um, that's Mike in a nutshell. Nice. Yeah, I, I like his little description. He makes complex matters simple, which is, you know, the job of a writer. So I want to dig down and let's define what you call this book. Why every data? Well, the idea is that every day people are bombarded with information from their cell phones, their smartwatches, on the internet, TV, radio. And oftentimes they don't even realize that it's based on data, numbers, information that they are consuming. Uh, it's so much data. The if you took 34 pickup trucks and printed out all of that data, that's how much information the average American consumes each day across all the media that they are looking at. So although there's a lot of attention to big data, giant data sets, what every data is is the little data that influences your daily life, whether it's time to fill your car with gas, what it says when you get on the scale in the morning, what you do when you go to the gym, what you think about the weather forecasts. Uh, when you see the news article in the newspaper that says, eat five avocados and you'll lose weight, all of these things actually play a pretty big role in our decision making and in the world around us. And yet oftentimes we're not aware of them. So that's what the idea behind every data is. Well, you know, like all great marketing strategies, it's about consistency, not um, zowie wowie, big explosive stuff in front of you. Do you think uh, that's why it's so influential? Because it, it's small pieces of information being drip fed to you over a very long period of time? I think so. And I think part of it is that because we are bombarded with so much information, unless it's in small digestible bites, uh, people can't really make sense of it. If I gave you a data set with millions and millions of data points, you as a, a typical consumer of data, you wouldn't know what to do with that. I mean, I, I went to school for years to figure out how to interpret data sets like that. That takes a lot of hard work and statistics and sort of technical training. But if I give you some sort of number, four out of five dentists recommend this gum, yeah, you can make sense of that. Mm. Well, is it true that, um, you know, 90% of all facts are made up 
And I just made that up, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, right. That quote was from, you know, Abraham Lincoln on the Internet. <laughs> uh, you know, no, I don't I don't think that's actually sort of one of our big messages. I think what we try to say is there are clearly numbers that are being used for a purpose that are completely misleading. There are numbers that are out of context. There are numbers that are wrong. But the key is not to sort of disregard all numbers and think to yourself, oh, well, every statistic can be made to show me anything, but actually to be able to begin to discern what is the information that is useful to me and what is the information that might be misleading me. And that journey, that, that energy to sort of think about how you become a better consumer of data in your everyday life, that's really the goal of the book. Mm. It's almost the ability to curate the information, um, you know, understand what you stand for, the information that's most valuable to you, you know, the, the, the 80-20 rule once again. what Out of all this information, what's the 20% of it that's really going to make uh, my life better or my ability to, to save time or, or whatever you need um, and then concentrate on that? That's exactly right. And so much of it is about just awareness, knowing when you see something, oh, you know, I shouldn't take it for granted that living near a Starbucks is going to increase my home values just because the newspaper says so. I should think a little harder about what the real meaning is behind that. What about, you know, we tend to filter a lot of information, and the more information we have, the quicker the filters turn on. Uh, is is the small data sn sneaking by that that mechanism? You know where we kind of tune out traditional advertising. We're we're tuning out ninety nine percent of the signage we see on the street. Uh, a lot of times we're tuning out a lot of the signage that helps us drive because we're on autopilot or we're just listening to our uh, our phone tell us where to go. Are we over filtering? And is it harder and harder for us to really get to the data that we need to get to? I think it is harder to get to the data we need to get to. Um, you know, there's one quote that I do think is um, pretty credible, that 90% of the world's data was created in the last two years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, if you think, right, you think about that, that's wow. There's so much more information that you confront. And so, of course, in the midst of this sort of deluge of information, it's a lot harder to not just overlook, to sort of push to the side, or just not have the time to dissect every single thing. A lot of what we talk about are, you know, we call them triggers or things you can look to that say, oh, when I see something like this, I should stop and pause and think because there's a sign or a signal to myself that, oh, this is how to think about this issue. So, so much of what we talk about is not treating people in math and statistics so they can tell the difference between means and modes and averages and all these kind of things or run, you know, analyses in the back room, but more how do you heighten your own intuition of the data around you so you know when to pay attention or you know when to pause and think and be more aware. And, it, you know, it sounds to me it's almost like a, a, a trained thing where you can learn to be get to get better at it and to a point where it's almost automatic and it's like it's an instantaneous thing when you're constantly doing it. I think so. I think it is instinctual when you start to pay attention. And a lot of the way we developed our work was to really focus on lots of different types of examples. Um, I know as a businessman, as someone that is mentors a lot of people, people learn in different ways, you know. And so 
some people really love math and statistics and equations. Some people like examples. Some people learn from listening to things. And so you really have to give people a range of examples and illustrations to sort of make sure that the broadest possible audience can get something out of the ideas we have. And that's a big function of our book. It, it reads quickly because there are so many different examples. You know, if you don't like one, there's going to be another one in a page or two. <laughs> um, and so we have everything from why the space shuttle blew up to why eating grilled cheese doesn't improve your sex life. It's a pretty wide range. And two very important topics in our lives. <laughs> For different reasons. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Do you think we're, we're entering the age of data humanization where we have people like yourself uh, going out there taking this ridiculous amount of data that's being created by us and, and, and uh, other organizations and then humanizing the sense that, like you were saying, like, eight out of ten, blah, 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 or if you're thinking of going in this career go this angle because in 10 years this this is going to be replaced by robotics. Yeah, I do think, you know, a lot of what I do, I mean, one of my parts of my consulting firm is I'm an expert witness. And so I get presented with data sets in litigation where I have to go and explain what they mean to people that sometimes don't want to hear about that, you know, judges, juries, <laughs> lawyers. Um, I think a really good data analyst and really people that get what data analysis is about know that it's not just doing the most sophisticated technical things. In fact, oftentimes that's not the right approach. It's about getting to the essence of the data in a way that you're being true to what it's showing you and that you then can explain it simply and concretely so that everyday people can understand it. Um, and since I did so much of that in a courtroom, one of the rationales for the book when we first started was, hey, could we bring this to a broader audience where we talk about these data concepts the same way? So, so much, I think, of getting people excited and interested in data is helping them to empower them so they understand it's not really beyond you if you're willing to think a little bit and learn a few techniques. You know, you, you, you touch on it in the book, but I'm curious, what's the best way to represent data? Is it uh, pie charts? I mean, I'm talking visually here, uh, graphs, or, or different data needs to be presented in, in, in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, we could have written a whole book just on representation. We only have one <laughs> chapter, but we could have gone on and on. Um, it really depends, and I know that feels like a little bit of a cop-out, but as a practical matter, you know, I have seen during the course of my professional career data sets that were incredibly complicated where we were doing very sophisticated econometric techniques, but the thing at the end of the day that swayed the court was a pie chart because it was simple and it made the point. There's other times where you have complex data and you need something that will really convey its complexity. One of the uh, one of my favorite infographics, which I had put on my blog very, very own when I started blogging, you know, long before the book came out, was one with the various flavors of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And it's just a chart that sort of shows all the flavors and how they all combine to sort of together. And it, it's pretty simplistic, but it is a, a complex visual. And I can't tell you, I was shocked at how – and it's not one I created. It was actually one that was out there. And, of course, I have all the sources. I can't tell you how many people stopped and asked me about the Ben and Jerry's graphic. You know, Sometimes you don't know what's going to attract people's attention or why it is that they care about a certain data representation. Um, it is difficult if you're trying to teach because, as I said before, people learn differently. So for some people, raw numbers are a little bit easier for them to grasp. Others, it's a pie chart. Others, it's a bar chart. Um, I do say, though, a good discipline to bring to that is always ask yourself first, what is the message I'm trying to convey with the data? And also, or put differently, 
what does the data truly tell me? And then what is the simplest, best way to represent that to my audience? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that simplest and the best in the sense that you can bamboozle them for a bit, but when it comes down for a person having to make a decision, you have to strip away a lot of the complexity so they can wrap their head around it. And and sometimes, like you're saying, you show the complexity to to show the authenticity or, or, or uh, the value of what you're saying and say, okay, so now you've seen that, let's simplify it. But at least you know it, it's it's based on an incredibly complex procedure and, and, and this ridiculous graph. And here we have it in a, in a pie chart with just three little sections. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, as a data analyst, as a scientist, you know, my credibility is incredibly important. You know, you have to be a credible analyst. And so you want to make sure that people understand if there are key assumptions, if there are key decisions you made, you want them to understand that so they don't think you've, you know, they can put it in perspective. Now, that doesn't mean you have to focus on here's the 87 things I did to the data to get you to the point, right? That's sort of where it gets lost. So there's a bit of an art there, but I always try to err on the side of, you know, transparency, um, clarity, and ultimately then here's why I drew the conclusion I did. If you can show someone your thought pattern with data, then they can replicate it. They can think to themselves, I agree. They can say, you know, I don't agree with that part. And then you can have a productive discussion. But if it's just, hey, I'm throwing some numbers at you. Here's my four out of five number again. You know, well, then it's just giving it weight for the sake of the number sounds large or impressive, but it doesn't really get to the thought process you need to have a meaningful dialogue and actually to meaningfully convince someone of your position. Well, do you think these days, uh, because everything is uh, so rushed and, and our, our news cycles are so fast, that a lot of the important information is being stripped out for you know the convenience of, of speed and, and the ability to, to make a punchy little headline? Uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned headlines. Headlines is a very big topic in the book. Um, we were talking before we went on the air that I, I did a TEDx talk last week with my co-author, and one of the things we really honed in on was data in the headlines. And so one of my favorite headlines was, one in five CEOs are psychopaths, new study says. Now, I'm a CEO of a company. I really don't want people looking at me funny as I'm walking down the hall. But if we actually fixed that headline, what it should have said was something more like, one in five supply chain professionals in companies that make more than $50 million in revenue a year are psychopaths based on self-reported data, study of 261 people finds. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> and so a lot more detail there that changes the way you think about it, right? So um, I think it is the case that the news media has a purpose. I think a lot of news media is trying to get these things right. Many of them are not trained in statistics. Many of them have deadlines and are trying to get to the essence, and sometimes it's hard to discern what the essence is, and then you end up with these headlines that maybe are flashy, but don't really reflect what's really under the surface in the story. Yeah, we live in a society of clickbait, let's face it. Yep, we do. You know, it, it's, uh, I lie on my headlines because that makes people click through, and then it's justifiable. Well, no, not really. You're misleading people so they click to information they don't really need. And uh, that's a terrible thing. I mean, why would you think that? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, what we sort of talk a lot about is, and this is funny, but this comes back to some of the triggers we talk about, you know, things like four out of five, things like new study says, things like the average American. We tell people, when you see those phrases, 
that's some of the signs, those triggers that you should pause and think before you run off. You know, how does that apply to you? What could be under the surface? Now, it doesn't mean every time you see a phrase four out of five that the numbers are wrong or misleading. It just means that that's a good signal to say, oh, somebody's referring to a data set here or a study or some average. And I should think a little bit harder about what that means before I believe that applies to me. Yeah, I think uh, not enough people fact check before they paste on Facebook. And I find it incredibly frustrating some of the garbage that's being put up there. And the person thinks they're being useful because there's, oh, I saw this really interesting thing, but all you did is read the headline. That is totally not the thing to do. You read the headline and then read part, if not all, of the thing that you're posting saying, hey, this seems really interesting. And put a quote in from it to to show the people that you've actually read it instead of just like blasting out some BS that you think is a topic that your audience would be interested in. And I think that's one of the fundamental problems with Facebook is after a while, people just get sick of it and they just stop going. Facebook, Twitter, you know, all of them. I mean, there, there's, there's all of these things that sort of get retweeted, reposted, and you have to be careful about what they mean. And also people have to be more discerning in terms of what they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it goes all the way back to, uh, you know, uh, curating your life and curating the, the information that's that's put into it. It makes a huge difference. Now, in your book, you have a lot of uh, amazing anecdotes. Uh, is there one particular chapter that, you know, for you, jumped out and, and uh, you enjoyed the most, or is that co- like a totally unfair question? No, I mean, there's a lot of things I enjoyed. I think one of my favorites, though, was the chapter on causality. Uh, and we talk about it. We start by saying, you know, how you see all the time things that say you can be smarter. Um, and one of our favorite ways to get smarter is we tell you you can wear eyeglasses, buy an iPhone, um, listen to Radiohead, drink more alcohol, stay up later at night and learn to juggle. Because all of those things are things we saw newspaper articles that said if you do this, it will make you smarter. The problem is none of them in and of themselves make you smarter. And in fact, that's not what the articles or the research often said. So we talk about, for example, the iPhone study. The iPhone study, the headline really was – buy an iPhone, you'll be smarter. But what the study said was the percentage of people in a state that own an iPhone is related to the percentage of people in a state that have a bachelor's degree. Okay, (laughs) And not even close. (laughs) Right. So that's not the same thing. So we talk about that. And the reason why I enjoy that so much is because that's a concept that I think when you get people thinking about the fact that you can find statistical relationships all around you, but the real meaning in them requires more thinking, more thought, more care, that's a concept and a skill that people can grasp, you know? And so that's sort of, that's kind of why I love that chapter in particular. Hmm. Now, is there anything in the book that uh, kind of blew you away as an aha moment where you kind of knew it before, but once you put it into words and and were editing it and made it into a a section in the book, it's like, wow, now I truly understand what this is about. Uh, You know, that's an interesting question because so much of the book is like that. I mean, one of the great things about being an economist and a statistician is, and particularly in my job, is I get to teach people all the time. But I can't, you know, it's so hard to express how even as someone who deals and been dealing with statistics on a daily basis for the last several decades, um, I was amazed how the discipline of having to try to write things out simply, carefully, thoughtfully, just made me learn it so much better. <laughs> um, even something as simple as an average, you know, um, that's a concept I've been dealing with forever. <laughs> and yet the art of having to explain that in a, in a really transparent and clear way 
was really valuable. I mean, I learned a lot, as did my co-author, um, in different ways. But so, so much of the book was that kind of experience. I mean, that is really hard to isolate because it was so many things. It was like, wow, this is striking. But I will say, what I hadn't done before is this kind of systematic effort to look at the news media, the headlines, the internet to pull our examples. I mean, we called <laughs> talking about curating. We had over 3,000 examples we started with. I mean, my co-author and I are in different cities, so we would text each other on almost a daily basis with articles that we thought were suspicious or worthy of looking at. And we narrowed it down to about the, the 100 or more that are actually in the book. But this process of starting to look at the, the, the news media closely, and again, not to pick on the news media, that's not the point of the book, but just the information that we could find around us was incredible to me. I mean, I could not believe how pervasive these issues were. And so that was a really big lesson for me. It was just, wow, this is everywhere. Um, made me excited that we wrote a book on it because I'm like, we can really make a difference with this. Hmm. What about traditional uses of data like forecasting? Can people use every data uh, as a way to forecast what's going to be happening for them or is that really more advanced stuff? No, you know, we do have a chapter on forecasting. And although I don't view it as something that's teaching people how to do sort of the you know, advanced forecasting techniques. We do have a few very good pointers, I think. One is remembering that any forecast sort of is predicated on the following principle. The past has to be prologue to the future or else your forecast doesn't work. So we do a lot of discussion of examples of bad forecasts. We talk about the Fukushima nuclear disaster and the fact that if they had actually looked at the prior uh, tsunamis appropriately, the height of the wall at the nuclear reactor would have been, you know, a lot higher than the one that was there that basically led to the disaster. And so we talk a lot about framing your questions appropriately. You know, you can't forecast unless A, you know, you've thought about does the past <laughs> going to equate to the future, but also do you have the right data? Do you have the right information? So our treatment of forecasting is very conceptual in the book um, where we're just trying to raise for people the types of questions they should put forward if they're going to try to forecast with data. Do you think because we all have an amazing computer in our pocket, our smartphones, uh, we're, we're able to uh, utilize more data? I mean, a classic example is in your car and, and your smartphone's telling you where to go, and then it says, oh, by the way, here's another – you can go this way, but it's going to be three minutes slower. That's based on live data that's happening uh, from all the other phones that are uh, being used to do the same thing in the city that you're in. Uh, absolutely. I think the amount of information and data continues to be mind-numbing. And we all have – I mean, again, a smartphone is an incredible thing. I mean, I think back to my childhood and you know, the first time I saw a computer is my grandfather bought an Atari 400. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, it had the little peanut butter and jelly keyboard, you know, where you, it was sort of a, and, you know, oh, these giant cartridges to play Space Invaders or whatever it was. Right. But um, and you think about those computers and you think about how these things that we carry in our pockets are so much more powerful. So, you know, that is part of the excitement and the challenge. Right. It is amazing that we can pull down. I can go on my phone and pull down data in a few seconds. Um, huge data sets if I wanted to. But with that comes the responsibility, the ability to interpret it, what it means for us. And so it is a challenge. I think on net, it's a positive thing to have more information than less. But there is a downside. And the downside is the potential for the confusion, the potential for being misled, the inability to actually make any sense of it because it's just too much for us to comprehend. Well, that being said, maybe they should be teaching data skills in school, like at a, at a much, much earlier age, like, you know, kindergarten. 
Yeah, I think that there are really exciting things that can be done with data at a much earlier age. I do agree with that. And I think, you know, um, like one of the neatest parts actually from my book experience was a, a sort of a elementary school teacher that read the book and sort of started to use some of the concepts with her students because she's like, this is just so valuable to start to get them to think about data this way. I think that kids are really, really ripe to be taught these kinds of skills because, you know, this generation of kids are so comfortable with the technology, with the computers, that if you can get them to think about the intuition, we could actually make a real significant difference. So I, I would love to see more earlier education on these types of issues. I think that would be a fantastic development. Yeah, I definitely think this is a generation of consumers. Um, and, and, you know, ironically, a lot of people brought tablets out to, to so people could be more creative and productive and stuff, and, and most people are just watching YouTubes. Do you think that the next generation will be way more tuned into utilization of these uh, tools? And, and when I say tools, it's like the, the physical devices, but also the, the, the soft tools behind it, like the apps and the, and the ability uh, for that app to, to go through incredible amounts of data and give them meaningful information because my kids they were brought up on this stuff and you know for fun well back in the day like eight years ago i was showing them lps before they became popular and i said this has less data on it than like a cd and and she said what's a cd and that blew my mind it's like oh my gosh i'm showing an lp and like <laughs> cds are <laughs> yeah look it's an interesting question because i think with respect to the comfort level with the devices, what the devices can and can't do, absolutely. The question is whether the rigor of how you think about it will translate or not. And that, I think, is the harder question. I don't know the answer to that. You know, will this generation be able to pick up the thinking skills so they're not misled by all this information? Or will they just be so comfortable with it that there sort of becomes this seamless barrier of fact, no fact. It's just a big amorphous mess. And what do you do with it? Yeah, then it ceases to have any value because people are numb to it. So they have it'll have to reinvent the introduction of data and and uh, what it means for people. So it, it's like everything else. As soon as it becomes normal, then it becomes an abstract concept. I agree. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the phenomena of averaging, where where people over average. I think the chapters three, red state blues. You know, the the ramifications are a little on the disturbing side more than anything else. Yeah, so I start with averaging in the following way. You know, if you think you were taking a picture of someone, and I took a picture of you from the front side, I could see some things about you, certain characteristics, but it's only one snapshot, one picture. For some reason, people think when you take an average of a data set that somehow you've captured all the essential elements of the data set, and they often ignore the fact that that average can be incredibly misleading. So my favorite example is the example of the monks and Bill Gates. So let's say you have an apartment building and you have 10 apartments. Nine of the apartments have monks living in them who've taken a vow of poverty and they make no money each year. The 10th apartment is Bill Gates and he makes $11.1 .1 billion this year. The average income in my apartment is $1.1 .1 billion. <laughs> that doesn't tell me anything about Bill Gates and it really doesn't tell me anything meaningful about the monks. Right, So I was able to obscure an incredible amount of variation information with the average. And in that particular example, the average is pretty meaningless. Now, there are other times where the average isn't meaningless, but you have to be aware of the fact that it's just a summary measure and think beyond the average before you go make decisions. That reminds me so much of how we're 
perpetually misinformed because we're not researching the data that we're given. You know, we kind of talked about a little bit in, in how people on social media and Twitter, you know, blast out stuff that they haven't researched at all. But is it really our responsibility to to do that or because we don't have so much time in the day or is it kind of the responsibility of the people that are providing the data to provide it in different sets so you have a white paper version you have a a relatively complex version you have a complex graph version then you have a simplified graph and and so you can dig deeper relatively quickly without having to do the you know the research because a lot of the data that we get doesn't have a um, footnotes, doesn't have uh, backup links and stuff like that. So if you want to dig down deep, you can. Yeah, look, I, I think I sort of think of it this way. First of all, if you are going to rely upon a certain data set for an important decision in your life, I think it is incumbent on you to make sure you think about harder about the data. On the other hand, as a data analyst, to the extent that you can make the data more accessible, that you are highlighting those key assumptions or key elements of the data, that you have, you know, clickable links for things with background information. Yeah, I think that is a both a, a valuable um, practice and also somewhat incumbent on people. I mean, one of the things when I talk at universities all the time is I tell the professors and researchers, I said, you need to understand that a lot of the concepts I'm going to talk about to you, you probably get but they don't realize that their own research, when it gets translated, could be translated in these ways that has nothing to do with what they actually are doing. <laughs> and so getting them aware of that phenomenon, how the study turns into the striking headline, that's a very important thing as well. Yeah, it's almost like the professor should be providing that important headline, so at least circumventing misinterpretation. It's like the classic, oh, I was misquoted. You know, you you get interviewed by the press, and then the headline that comes out has nothing to do with with, with what you were trying to get across. It must be the same with data. I think it often is. I think it's hard because, of course, you don't usually have that kind of control over the those things. But again, to the extent that you can make sure you're explaining it as well as possible, making backup information available, there are other ways, at least, to get the information out there to make sure that your work is put in the proper context. How important is it for organizations to, to basically have a data expert, and I know this is a biased question for you, but but um, have them on hand almost on C-suite level and then uh, upper management. So you have a, not just one data specialist in your company, but you have a series on different levels that people can go to and, and get advice from. So it would be almost like a this is our data specialist, but he also specializes in helping you communicate that data in a way that will be most meaningful for your audience? I'll give you my opinion. I mean, my firm is kind of unique because obviously we do so much data analytics that, you know, I can walk up and down the hall and find about 40 people that can help interpret a data set, right? But I think in a more general setting where we don't, companies that don't specialize in data analysis like we do, um, I do think the ability to sort of integrate your admin functions and have a core member of your admin team able to be comfortable and work with data is helpful. And even at my firm, you know, my admin team, you know, we do have people on our team there that process data certain ways, think about it. And again, it doesn't always have to be the most sophisticated data, right? It's the discipline of saying, I want to make a certain decision about what direction my company's taking. And if I want to do that, what is the best available data I have to make that decision? How can we organize it? How can we structure it so that we can actually look at it in meaningful ways to figure out what it means? Um, I think that's where really the first line of thinking about data and integrating data into your management is a critical way to go. 
Um, and then it just depends. As you know, again, I am not necessarily saying that every decision should only be made on the purpose of data, <laughs> but I do think data is critical to informing decisions and um, and reinforcing that decisions you're making are having the impact that you think they are. Yeah, I think we're living in a, a golden age of data, and if you're not utilizing it in a, in a sophisticated way, well, you know, you're 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 doing stuff that's old fashioned, and you're basically disadvantaging your organization because the people that are utilizing data properly and are making decisions on on thought out data, um, it, it's it's an unfair advantage a lot of times, and if you're doing that on purpose, well, not even on purpose, just out of uh, bullheadedness, it's a, a really stupid thing uh, on, on a strategic level for a company to be thinking. Right. I completely agree with that. I mean, if you think of it this way, if there's some tool that I could, if I went to you and said, hey, I have this secret tool I can give you that's going to allow you to be more effective in the marketplace, more competitive, um, to gain an advantage over, you know, out there for your business, and you said, well, I don't want to take advantage of it. Well, it's data. It's right there for you. So that's that seems to me to be crazy not to at least think about it. Well, but, but why don't people think about it? Is it that they don't trust the data or they don't trust uh, statist statisticians uh, because uh, they've been misused in the past? Why, why do you think? Yeah, look, that? I think there's an element of fear. I think people that, you know, I do think business people do trust their gut probably more than they should. I think that's something, you know, well, I know my business better than anything else. Well, maybe you do, and maybe we can reinforce some things or we can anticipate changes. You know, it's not about I always I always tell people when I when I study sort of new data sets or new industries that, you know, I'm not there to replace their industry knowledge. In fact, I want to build off of that and show how the data can sort of really be used to either reinforce that certain things work the way they do or flag places where the data may not work the way conventional wisdom thinks and you need to be pay attention to it. You know, it's it's not an either or. It's not, you know, I think that the, the probably the highest profile example is always the notion in baseball of the sabermetrics crew, right? The group that sort of came in and replaced scouts by doing very heavy data analysis, right? I think most organizations now have gotten to a hybrid where they do still have professional scouts who go and watch games. But they also temper it with real data to sort of make decisions. And then, you know, the extent to which each individual baseball club decides to do that is their own how they run their business. But it doesn't necessarily mean one – it doesn't mean all intuition, everything we know from the past gets thrown out. It really, when appropriately thought of, it should be that the data provides structure and confirmation or refutation of sort of some of the things that you think you know. Yeah, it's almost like um, being ahead of your time. I mean, it may be a brilliant idea and a brilliant gut uh, idea, but it might be ahead of its time. Maybe the market isn't ready for it. So definitely go for your gut feelings because that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit and that's what makes business fun a lot of times. But also check it out with some data to see if you're a little off base. It, it You may not be wrong, but it, the timing might be off or the economy isn't ready for it or uh, people just can't get their head around it. And you, you know, A classic example is the fax machine. Well, the fax machine came out and bombed and then I think it was eight years later, it came out and just blew up and everybody loved it. So it's really a lot of times it's not that the idea is bad, it's the timing is bad and something like data can help you know if the timing is going to be better than what it is right now. Or at least able to put it in context so that you can figure out as you're trying to make these assessments in real time, 
what are the challenges? What is it telling me? What what type of market penetration am I getting? What does it mean? What what other factors could be at play? What am I hearing that is reason for my product not being widely accepted? I mean, there's a lot of different uses of it, and depending on the problems you have, you can shape data analysis to help you have real useful information. Now, and, and, you know, we're kind of going a little off because we're talking a lot about businesses and making business decisions and stuff, but the premise of the book is every data. Um, do you think that a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is still applicable to your average guy, like your average businessman that, that just can't get to the data or doesn't know how to wrangle the data? Or a lot of people can't afford to have a like a really high-end statistician. Are there programs or techniques that they can use to help them at least have a, a fighting chance of dealing with some of this data? Yeah, I mean, I actually think that's where the book is far more oriented, right? Because we do talk about, you know, the book is oriented around seven or eight statistical concepts that you frequently encounter. And then giving examples of the ways that those techniques are sometimes misinterpreted, sometimes abused, and how to think about it based on these examples, right? So, so for the average person, to the extent there is such a thing as the average person. <laughs> for, for the average person, I think the book really provides that context to say, oh, this is the kinds of questions I can answer with data. This is what the data may or may not mean to me. Um, here's the places where I think I want to dig deeper, right? Maybe it's the case that you don't have the ability to answer every question with data, but there are certain important ones. And just by sort of getting a better feel intuitively for what data is out there, you realize, oh, this is a question that would be good for me to try to answer with data. Um, again, not everything has to be sophisticated. Sometimes doing some just compa- just looking at the data can tell you an awful lot. I think one of the most powerful parts of the book is actually right at the end. It's the glossary uh, because you actually define what a lot of these words are. And you know, I went through it for fun, and and I'm totally misinformed about a lot of these words. Um, do you think that uh, people don't have the right definition for for keywords when they're talking about data? Well, I think the problem is that sometimes words take on colloquial meanings that don't really translate. You know, the science of statistics is very precise, and there are reasons why words have very specific meanings when we're talking about them, because if they don't, you can end up um, with pretty significant miscommunication. So I do think what happens more often than not is someone thinks, oh, this is what this term means, um, and then they kind of simplify it, then they simplify it a little bit more, and all of a sudden it's been so abstracted from really what the technical meaning is. And again, our, our book is not about trying to add a lot of formality to the world, because I think, you know, but it is about trying to get the key concepts right and fixed in your head. So when you're confronted with them, you can look at them objectively and clearly and at least have some understanding of what they might mean. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite one is p-hacking. And I'd never heard of that term before, but as soon as I read it, I say, "Oh, geez, I, I'm guilty of that," and I'm sure a lot of other people are. Uh, let's define p-hacking for everybody. Well, p-hacking has actually got a lot of attention recently. But whenever we look at thinking about statistics, you know, the basic problem we have is we usually can't go out and look at everyone we care about. That's called the population. You know, um, there's just too many people. You know, we can't survey 180 million people. So what we do is we look at samples, and samples are smaller sets of the data, sometimes 1,000, sometimes 2,000, sometimes 10,000, and we look for relationships in that sort of sample. 
Now, one of the things that often happens is there are accepted standards for when is something considered, the phrase is statistically significant. But in a, in a colloquial sense, it means, oh, given, this, given the data we have, we believe there's some kind of statistical relationship in the data. Maybe it's a relationship between how many years of school you have and your income or, or, or any number of things. P-hacking is the idea that the accepted standard has generally been what's called the 5% level. And so what happens is people run their analyses over and over and over until they get variables that show up at the 5% level. And that's p-hacking. Now, the real way a scientist would do it is you specify before you start what you think the key variables are. You test it in the data. And then the data tells you, all right, here's what works and here's what doesn't. But oftentimes what happens because, you know, what gets published in journals are usually results that have, you know, a greater than 5% um, p-value. Um, yeah, sorry, less than 5% p-value. These are the things that people look for. So p-hacking is just the idea that people run over and over their data analysis till they find statistically significant results. Hmm. Or bias. Right. So how do you defend against that? Well, a lot of what that requires, a lot of what scientists are doing, you know, some interesting ideas about this. One has been um, making sure that when people do their, um, their publications, they're presenting a wide range of the things they ran to get there. You know, they're actually providing their underlying work to see how their models evolved. Um, some journals are starting to have, there have actually been some ideas where people are putting forward their, literally their social science experiments first, where they say, this is what I'm going to test and this is the data I'm going to use. And then based on that, then the results get run and it's more about the question you asked, not the result, what the results are. Um, and some of it's just being aware, you know, um, I had a college professor that said, you know, there's people in life whose, whose, um, T statistics are always close to two and there's people whose T statistics are always close to 20. And you want to be the type that people know are actually doing honest work, that you're kind of always, you know, if everything always seems statistically significant in all your work, people are going to question you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned samples, you know, 1,000, 10,000 stuff. Is, is it advisable to use less than 1,000? Like, can you do uh, like 100 people or 10 people? <laughs> Look, generally, and you have to be really careful about these things, generally, you know, people generally like more data rather than less. But there are times where it's not feasible. You know, we don't just have a perfect world where we can always get samples that are, you know, you know, thousands and tens of thousands. And so it really depends on the context. But the important thing is the sample size changes, you need to begin to recognize the limitations. You know, a sample of 10, you're probably not going to be able to get very um, meaningful results from that, right? Or if you do, they're so imprecisely measured, they're so wide that they probably don't tell you a lot, right? So you see all the time, and you know, right now in the political season, you see lots of polls in the U.S., and you always see these margins of errors. And these margin of errors go up or down based on the size of the polls. So when you see a larger margin of error, it's because they interviewed fewer people. And that's directly reflecting the fact that they can be less certain about the results because of the fact that they've talked to fewer people. What should our listening audience do today to make sure that their data is more realistic or their consumption of data is more realistic and make them more aware that there are so many different anomalies out there? Well, I think the first thing we talk a lot about is being simply aware when you see numbers and data in your life. You know, just the pure act of looking around and saying, oh, I had not really thought about the fact that all these numbers mean something. I mentioned before some triggers. You know, when I see phrases like... Uh, new rankings, <laughs> um, 
something that tells me that I'm going to be smarter, happier, healthier in the news, something that refers to a study, something that talks about percentages or fractions or four out of five. Those are all times where I stop and think, what does that mean to me? That's a good starting point. What is the meaning? And then the other thing is if you really are going to make a decision based on a number, you need to get in the habit of digging a little deeper to make sure it really is applicable to you. So basically, due diligence. Yeah. As you said before, there's so much information. You know, every time I read a headline, I'm not going to have the time unless all I did all day was look at headlines um, to dig into them. So what it really is, is when you get to a number that you think you want to act on, where you actually think you want to incorporate it into your decision making, that's the time to really dig deeper. That makes sense. I mean, if it's if it sounds too good to be true, it is. You know, I made the joke before about a study that says, oh, eat four avocados and you'll lose weight. Now, I'm a statistician. I know better. But, you know, I'm still prone to seeing, oh, wow, that study sounds really cool. I love avocados. That's great. I should start eating four avocados. Oh, I feel good because now I'm going to lose weight. I know that's probably not true. But, you know, all of us are prone to this, right? Even I, as a statistician, I'm still prone to knowing better and still wanting to believe, oh, that sounds just too good to be true. But you're still kind of drawn to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's the uh, unconscious and conscious biases that we live with every day. And really, to be responsible and, and, and grown-up human beings, you know, we've got to take some of the fun out of life and say, okay, come on, Bob, <laughs> let's be a little bit more realistic. Exactly. I've been chatting with John. Every data, the misinformation hidden in the little data you consume every day. Fascinating topic and, you know, a real eye-opener for me. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Bob. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.